And we're going to look at uh, Acts chapter 15 tonight, so let me read that part. Only we're going to read from 1 to 21, not all of it. Let me pray before we start. Father, we do want to thank you that uh, uh, the Lord Jesus says is something that uh, we can roll off our lips, but we want to understand how good that is tonight. And we pray that your Holy Spirit will teach us so that we don't uh, uh, think that we have to do anything else uh, but to trust that amazing rescue. Teach us how wonderful it is from the Bible as we look at it and read it and study it and understand it with your help. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. <coughs> and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we have been saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this I will return, I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those the Gentiles who turn to God 
but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now we're going to stop there and pause for a moment while the children leave and then we'll carry on. Well, let's make a start and ask this question, what do you make of it when Christians disagree and divide? Now we're living in a time when disagreeing is bad. In a multicultural society like ours, who's to say someone's right and someone's wrong and there should be a disagreement about what's right and what's wrong. And a Christian baker who disagreed with the pro-gay message uh, of uh, gay marriage refused to bake a, a cake with that message on it and he was taken to court because you're not allowed to disagree with the view of people in our culture. Now, if it's seen as bad when Christians disagree with the world, then um, it is certainly bad when Christians are seen to disagree with each other. And uh, that is what uh, I guess most of us would think as we come to a passage in the Bible that talks about Christian disagreement. We think, how horrible. But the Bible says in this part that actually disagreement is a good thing. Because when you disagree, what happens is that you take the view of X and you look at it closely and then you took the, look at the view of Y and you look at that closely and you try and work out the right way forward in the disagreement. What you don't do is say, well, there's no disagreement at all and try and cover it up. And you don't say that the disagreement is unimportant and try and push it to one side. You look at it and you deal with it, and that's what's happening here. And when you look at the Bible telling us about disagreement, at least it tells you, doesn't it, that the Bible's honest about what's going on and it doesn't hide anything from us. And in fact, in this passage, there are not one disagreement, there are not one disagreement, but two. There's the disagreement where in verse 2 you get no small dissension between Christians, but they also get the disagreement uh, that you read about in verse 36, where uh, there is, or rather in verse 39, there is a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. It's a chapter of disagreement, and the Bible tells us when there's disagreement. But the first disagreement is a serious one because that's about God and everybody comes to get it sorted out because if you don't get this disagreement sorted out, evangelism across the world will stop, which is not what Jesus said should happen in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 where evangelism is to go out into the whole world. But the second disagreement, where that doesn't stop evangelism when Paul and Barnabas disagree, it just means that evangelism goes on in two different places. They agree to disagree, and that disagreement is therefore less important. Now, it's not happy reading when Paul and Barnabas 
uh, have a disagreement with each other and we're not quite sure why they have the disagreement with each other because we're not given the details but just told that Mark had deserted them before and maybe Paul didn't want them to do it again but it's just guessing all it does tell us is that there are times when Christian personalities clash and people need a break from each other and the Bible is honest enough to tell us when that is the case but also wonderful to tell us that it's not disagreement that lasts a long time because by the end of Paul's life Paul and Mark are as close as they come so if you want to look have I put in the notes 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 11 I'll read it to you to stop you uh, having to go there but 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 11 says Luke alone is with me and get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me in my ministry that's what Paul says about Mark now although one time he said he's not coming with me and so that disagreement is ultimately settled in the resumption of friendship and gospel work together it's the first disagreement that is the big one and we're going to see uh, look at that cluster tonight and to see that um, how God saves and how Christians love that's what we learn in Acts chapter 15 first how God saves and the first disagreement seems to be about circumcision which frankly to us in Dagnum today is entirely irrelevant to what people would ever think about disagreeing with never in a church in Dagnum would they have this argument but at that time it was a sign that God had chosen you to be one of his people it was like God's ID card that he gave to his people to show that they belonged to him Abraham did it to himself and then after that to every male that was eight days old there was this little operation done on the male to show that they belonged to God's special people and for 2,000 years they were told that this was a sign that they were God's special people and they would lose their special place in the scheme of things if these special people went and became like everybody else like the Gentiles which just means nations and if the people of God became like the nations they would lose their place so don't lose the identity or the special sign that you belong to God so it was never a problem in the Bible for Gentile people to become God's people um, all they had to do was to well get circumcised and then they could belong and that's why it seems that these people coming into verse chapter 15 verse 1 seem to have a point some men came from Judea but teaching the brothers unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses you cannot be saved but it seems like the whole Old Testament is there to tell them just that thing but Paul and Barnabas have just come back from South Turkey which in Bible times was called Galatia and that's where they've been telling Christians they don't need to be circumcised 
to become one of God's people. And so, who's right of those two? And does it really matter? Why can't you just cover it up and say, live and let live? After all, we've got churches today who say that uh, in their church only adults are baptized. In other churches, you can baptize children as well. Well, why can't you have a system like that? So that there are churches where you get people circumcised if that's what they want to do, and then other churches where they don't get circumcised if that's not their thing. Why don't you just sort it out that way? Why do you have to meet and make a big thing of it? And to find the answer to that, you've got to see what they said when they came and spoke about it together in verse 4 and onwards. And what they do is what I said at the start you should do when there's a disagreement. You should take X and take a good look at that, and then you should take Y and take a good look at that. And they start off by taking a good look at X, which is the people who say that you have to be circumcised. That's what they do. In verse 5, some believers rose up the part of the Pharisees and they said it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So they get their say and everybody's listening. In fact, they get more people. The elders come together in verses 6 and 7 and they say a lot more about that because you can see in verse, in verse 7 that there is a great debate. You won't see that debate in, in my face, uh, Angela. You need to see it in the Bible. It's on page 924. Have a look. Uh, there had been much debate and uh, that's where the argument is to be held. But then, after they've listened to X, Peter begins to explain why that disagreement is there, and he explains it uh, in verse 7 onwards. And what Peter does is he says how God is the one who is fully involved in serving his people so that there is no need or room for anybody else to do anything else. And the way he comes at it is to remember what happened when in Acts chapter 10 he went to a Gentile home and God gave the Gentiles, as they listened to Peter telling them about Jesus, he gave them exactly the same experience in Acts chapter 10 as God had given to his own people, the Jews, in Acts chapter 2. They had their own special Pentecost that was identical to the one that happened in Jerusalem. Just to show, as it says here in verse 8, that God had accepted them uh, the same way that he accepted us. That, sorry, in Acts chapter 10 verse 8, that's exactly what Peter says. Look, what's to stop these people being baptised? Because God has accepted them in just the same way that he has accepted us. And Peter's saying that here again in verse 9, isn't he? He made no distinction between them and us. He treated that group just the same. And it wasn't that God didn't know that they were Gentiles. God knew their hearts in verse 8. But in verse 9, he cleansed their hearts. And if God has cleansed their hearts, what more can people do to make any difference to being accepted by God fully? Which is what God had done.
And then Paul uh, speaks about how they simply cannot keep the law that they want other people to keep in verse 10. That's what he says. Why do we want to put a yoke on the neck of the disciples that we've not been able to bear? Why do we want them to keep rules that we were never good at keeping? And that's exactly the point, isn't it? That no one is very good at keeping rules or keeping laws. That's true if it's ordinary laws that we might make. Hands up here if you think that lying is a bad thing. Okay. Hands up if you have ever lied. Okay. That about goes the same way, isn't it? If someone, is that someone not got their hands up? Because essentially what that means is that there are two kinds of liars. There are the honest ones and there are the liars who say they don't lie. And that's the point. Is that we, we can't keep the rules that we set for ourselves. Never mind God's rules that we will never be able to manage. We're Rube Bakers by nature and therefore we need saving. We don't need more rules that we can't keep. And so God has to do everything to save us. That's why Peter says in verse 11, we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's another way of saying that Jesus will do absolutely everything, start to finish, to save you. And so therefore, when you come to talk about this problem, the real issue is, look, who does the saving? Does God do it? All of it? Or do you have to do it, and some of it, at least? So that's why you, you can't have two different views, like churches that baptize children and don't baptize children. The divide here is, does God save? in full or only in part and Peter wants to make the point that God saves grace means you do nothing God does everything for the people who can't do anything that's the only thing you can do if you don't want to lie about uh, uh, your uh, goodness the only thing you want to do is to trust the person who comes to rescue you. It's a bit like those boys who got trapped in a cave in Thailand, is it? You still remember what happened there? They got stuck in their cave and the divers had to go. And when the rescuers came to the boys to rescue them, they did nothing but trust the rescuers to save. And the way it happened is the way you see it on the picture that you have uh, two divers, one in the front and one at the back, and a boy in the middle. And all he had to do was follow the person, follow the rescuer. He didn't even have to carry his own air tank. The rescuer in the front even did that for him, and he trailed a line at the back so the boy could breathe. All the boy had to do was to breathe and follow. It's a great picture of the Christian life. All you have to do is breathe and follow. And God will do the rest in terms of rescuing and seeing you into safety. So when the boys finally come out of the cave and they're 
perfectly safe. They don't say, did you watch what I did in the water? They said nothing about themselves, only about their gratitude to rescuers who saw them from front and back that they were safe. And then in verse 12, Paul and Barnabas, oh, Barnabas comes first on this occasion because he's the one that Jerusalem knows better than Paul. And then Jerusalem, so he name comes first, Barnabas and Saul, said they found that it was God that did the saving. Again, what they're saying is that God treated the Jews to supernatural kindness in the way that he used to do that with the... With, sorry how God treated the Gentiles with supernatural kindness the way that he treated the Jews. I know Paul and Barnabas, they only get one verse in verse 12, but that's because Luke trusts that the person who's reading verse 12 doesn't need all the stories because they've read the stories as they've gone through his book. And so you don't need anything more than that. Just as we were here last week and we saw how God used the apostles, to bring a lame person to walk. And that lame person was a Gentile, and God had done great things accepting this Gentile and being kind to them, the way he'd always been kind to his people. And so there's Paul talking about the lame man and all the other stories. And then James uh, stands up, and James is not... Um, uh, the fisherman disciple that you read about in the Gospels, because that one got killed in chapter 12. This is James, who is the brother of Jesus, and he describes how the prophet said that God would save his people. It would be through a tent. Well, the fallen tent of David, that would be raised up. And that's all that needed to rescue the Gentiles. In verse 16 he says that, so that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. Now those words actually come from one prophet, uh, Amos, and chapter 9 verse uh, 11. Uh, uh, did I put that in your notes? Uh, and that's where the, the quote comes from. Amos said those words. But you can see that it's not just Amos because the prophets said those words. So other prophets said the same thing. Said that, for example, Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10, uh, spoke about the tent being crushed and then come back up on its feet again. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was put, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. In other words, he's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the tent of David that was fallen when he died on the cross and then rebuilt in the resurrection and restored. And the point is that if God saves you through Jesus, then you don't need anything else that you must do for that rescue to happen. The big point of chapter 15 is God is in the driving seat getting it done. But the mini point 
in chapter 15 is that Christians should now love and be regulated by love in how they behave. That's what verses 20 and 21 are about because it might seem slightly strange to read those verses if you didn't realize that because you think well hold on a minute we've just been told that rules don't work and no, rules can't be kept and therefore rules are not going to be part of the christian thing and now you look at verses 20 21 and what do you find rules what are they doing there but you notice in verse 21 his reason for them to live in this way is not god it is his people. You want to do it because the Jews have uh, heard God explained in these ways because he is read every Sabbath in their synagogues. And the laws they're talking about are the laws that you find in Leviticus chapters 17 and 18. And in Leviticus chapters 17 and 18, it's about how if there were pagans living in the Jewish community in the Old Testament, how they could get on with their Jewish neighbours without upsetting them. There were certain food laws, therefore, that regulated what you could eat and what you couldn't eat. And the sexual immorality that is uh, spoken about here is what you find in Leviticus chapter 18, which is the particular arrangement of marrying close relatives. That was also going to be offensive to the Jews. You wouldn't do that if you lived among them. Now, Leviticus 17 18 were written for Jews, but they are there to help guide Gentiles who lived there, who didn't want to be Jews, but who nonetheless wanted to live among them without uh, creating unnecessary offence. And so therefore, what Paul is now saying is, look, if you're Christians, and you're like that, living amongst the Jewish communities, well then in that case, regulate what you eat and what you drink and who you marry, so that you can now have relationship. Because otherwise, how would you help your Jewish neighbours to become Christians? If they won't even come and eat with you because you're eating the wrong things, or when you go there, you're not only eating the wrong things, but they're served up by your wife, who happens to be a close relative. Well, that is going to make them walk out. So, we don't do these things to provoke those reactions for reasons of love, not the law. Now, we might want to spend some time about it next week, because when you get to chapter 16 at the start, you see another reason why love is the reason, not the law. And we won't come to that tonight, because there just isn't the time. But what we do want to established night is that when Christians are saved they respond with love and draw people closer rather than push them away. Now how does that actually work out in the details of everyday life for us? Well first if you're not a Christian the big thing to understand is how you can be saved because the discussion going on here is not about an ancient ceremony that caused circumcision. The discussion here is how you compare religion with rescue. 
Because every religion has its rules on how you join, the way the Jews had circumcision and the law of Moses. But Christianity is a rescue, not a religion. My friends, that is why people don't like it. It's the same reason that an alcoholic won't like it if they drink too much, but they feel that their uh, drink habit is under control and therefore they will take great offense if you said you've got to come with me to Alcoholics Anonymous. They'll say it's not that serious. I've got it all under control and they'll take offense. In the same way if you go to an old Christian and say come with me in church because you need to understand how God saves you, there will be great offense because largely people think well my sin habit is under control. I'm not that bad. But a rescuing God has got to do it all. And therefore, even the realization that we need to be rescued in the first place is a humility that God has got to give to us. Otherwise, we won't realize that we are completely helpless. So if you aren't Christian, then ask God to rescue you, to save you, and to start by showing you how far away you are from Him that you'll never be able to save yourself. Ask him to show you how you need the rescue. So all you have to do is to breathe and follow him. What happens if you're a lifelong churchgoer and you see in verse 5 that believers in Jesus can still buy into Pharisee religion? This is a really important verse for us to learn from. Because it is possible to say, yes, I am going to follow Jesus, but we have got the laws to keep as well. And lots of Christian groups still push that. I guess most notably the Roman Catholic Church would say, yes, we want people to believe in Jesus. But at the same time, it's only if you're baptized a Catholic are you really a Christian. And then you've got to go to Mass and make sure that you keep up your confession logbook so that you are understood and recognized by the church to be a practicing Catholic and then you've got to fulfill all the days of obligation and everything else and the laws mount up and keep coming in yes Jesus believe in him but you've got the other things to do as well my friends that's I guess the obvious group that would do it but in every church that we've been to isn't it true that largely people tell us yes, follow, believe Jesus, but we've got these laws for you as well that you've got to keep. And we need to realize that if we go down that road, what we're going to be doing is to take one side and we're going to have the Apostle Peter, Paul, Barnabas and James all on the other side telling us that we've got it wrong. And they do that to help us because if there is anything that uh, you need to do, you will always be unsure that you've done enough. Even if you've got the smallest bit to do, well, how do you know whether that is going to be sufficient to get you in? Whereas if you understand the Lord Jesus is the one in charge of the rescue, 
and he's going to be leading in front and following up from behind and everything depends on him and the whole rescue operation if you want to make a, an even wider picture of it is in charge of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit then you immediately understand that you're safe just by trusting him without the add-ons and the extras. And the people who add on and extras are therefore desperately, demonically wrong. Because ultimately what they're doing is they're saying that God cannot save. That's very serious and that's why Peter and his friends line up to oppose it. But what happens if you are a real Christian and certainly we are all Gentiles as far as I know and we ought to be happy that God has done everything to save us if we just breathe and follow Jesus. But can you also see that that does not mean that we live whichever way we please. Yes, God will forgive our sin. It's our daily delight that he forgives our sins. And we need to keep driving that truth into our hearts. Because there's an engine inside of us that thinks we've got to do something to get better for God to like us. And we need to really drive it into our joy that God loves sinners. And he can save sinners. But now we don't have law reasons to obey God. We have love reasons. To stop ourselves doing anything that specially will put our neighbours off following Jesus as well. We do it for love. It's a bit like Debbie. She likes black coffee. I'm a husband. Now I don't put milk into her coffee because I'm scared of a divorce. <laughs> I don't put milk in her coffee because of devotion reasons. And self-interest because the trade-off is she doesn't put cucumber into my salad. <laughs> but but the, the reason why we are like that is because of love, not because of law. Because somehow the relationship will crack if I do the wrong thing. It won't. And sinning does not put my relationship with God at risk. But now we act for love reasons to make the gospel attractive. That is why I don't want to harbour sexual fantasies about somebody else or anger uh, dreams about uh, somebody else. Because when I do that, I'm not acting in love towards other people. Not if I want to think thoughts that abuse them. And so the Christian life now is lived for love reasons, not for law reasons. Well, you get the idea, don't you? Let's pray that God will help us to live it out as well, so that we understand that God deeply, deeply loves us to fully save us. All we have to do is to breathe and follow Jesus as he rescues us front and back. But let's also 
realize that love is our driver, especially wanting those who don't know him to come into his kingdom. So in a moment of quiet, you might just want to pray that into your own life, and one minute to do that, and then I'll finish and sum up in prayer for us together. <laughs> Well, let me pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus because you have rebuilt the tent of David that had fallen and he did that through the death and the resurrection, the falling and the rising of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to teach ourselves that you save in full without our help or our work. And help us to sacrifice ourselves that we may love others into his kingdom for their good and for the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.